Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I had to go about it, write it out, and find it myself. And there's some stories I can tell you. This is the final word, cricket podcast with Jeff Lemon and Adam Collins. It is uh, it's February, it's summer in Australia, it's winter in London and uh, the rest of England, the rest of the UK, the rest of the British Isles, the rest of Europe, even the rest of the Northern Hemisphere, maybe maybe not the bits just north of the equator. I digress. Uh, cricket, it feels like cricket's almost over international cricket for the summer here. We've just finished the women's ashes. I know there are some T20s against Sri Lanka, but I'm just going to go full disclosure in here and, and say, I don't really care. I don't really care about the T20s against Sri Lanka. Will I watch them? Maybe. But it's quite possible. Couldn't rule it out. But am I looking forward to them with excitement? Couldn't say that's the case either. Nonetheless, it's been a it's been a busy week. It's been a, a mad week, really. Another mad week um, administratively in Australian cricket. Justin Langer has resigned, as you would all know by now. And here we are. We've got to deal with that, I suppose, first up on the show. Adam, uh, welcome to another week on The Final Word. Another week of madness in, in Australian cricket and also in English cricket. It was a sequence of major announcements, wasn't it? There was Ashley Giles, Chris Silverwood, Graham Thorpe all hitting the fence uh, and pointing Paul Collingwood as the interim coach. That all was either side of the, the Langer decision, which, uh, you know, what do they say? State against state, mate against mate. Then you can fold into that generation against generation. Culture war as well, uh, which we've sort of touched on a little bit with the, the Langer uh, conversation in the past, but came out for all to see uh, since that rather abrupt news on Saturday morning. So the, bo- the board meeting on Friday, which we foreshadowed last week, and uh, that came out with almost a no result, I suppose, or at least that's how it was presented publicly. We got a, a mm. two-paragraph two or two-line statement from the team media manager, and it was sort of like nothing to see here. The board have met. Uh, conversations will, will take place now confidentially, uh, and it would seem that was that was the fuse uh, for Langer. He wrote a long resignation letter that night, which was uh, released into the wild on Sunday, but was sent to Cricket Australia on Saturday morning. That was a, an incorrect statement that uh, was doing the rounds that he'd resigned publicly before telling CA there was this letter. We just didn't know about it at the time. And then, yeah, all hell broke loose. It was the biggest cricket story probably since Sandpaper, which is bizarre considering all that's happened in, in the last four years. But such are the, are the emotions that, that revolve around this team, this job and this particular individual and all of the history that he has in the game both as a player and a coach that when the decision was made by him but I suppose with great assistance uh, by the board after they gave him an offer which he considered to be insufficient or or derisory really at six months uh, yeah it was always going to make for a ridiculously busy weekend and, and so it was. 
Well, not even six months. It was his, his contract was due to run out in June and they said you can do the T20 World Cup in sort of October, November and then not coach the test team over the next home summer. Um, so it, it, it was an offer they made knowing that it would never be taken up. That seems pretty certain to me. But just looking at this whole issue, the, the amount of heat in it seems absurd. If I can try to sum this up as best as I see it, it's okay for someone doing a job to reach the end of their time when they can usefully do that job, especially when that job is primarily focused on managing other people. You know, it's not doing a job where you have to dig a hole each day, you know, and and as long as you continue to dig the right size hole in a sequence of holes, then everything will be fine. It's a job where you need to have relationships with people and they, it's dynamic, it's interactive, it changes. And it's, it's about what works one year won't necessarily work two or three years later. That's okay. That's fine. It's fine for someone to finish up their time in that job and, and for them to move on. It's fine for people working with them to say, Hey, we've been working together for a while and now it's not working anymore. And and we want to change things up. All of that is okay. This kind of idea that this this sort of they keep using this phrase of player power like it's it's mad that the players are getting to decide well they're not deciding they're giving feedback on how well they think they can work with someone and if they think they're not going to work effectively with someone and that is also okay and a board could say well fuck you all we're going to appoint this guy anyway and you'll just have to deal with it and they probably would deal with it but it doesn't necessarily mean it would work well or or be the best for everybody this this idea that people will put it to you as coaching as results-based business and sure it is if you're losing all the time you're probably not doing that well at it but you can also like being successful on the field doesn't mean that things are going particularly well off the field but it doesn't mean that it's a grievous problem. It doesn't mean anyone's done anything terrible. It doesn't mean anyone's guilty or anyone needs to be cast out or there's any shame attached. It's just the reality of people working with people that relationships change over time. All of that is okay. So much heat could have been taken out of this had it been dealt with better. And had that been the starting point that it's about how these relationships work and what's the best way to deal with them, not about who deserves what or who is insulted by what or or whose friends think that what different version of, of possibilities should be happening yeah so what you described at the very start there was effectively picking a cricket team where if you pick a player for a job uh, they may be doing that job at one level uh, fitting in a certain team at a certain time but then they get squeezed out and so it goes I'm not sure if it was Malcolm Connell Daniel Bredig who've both done some great reporting and writing around this and providing context around it too uh, who went back to what Bob Simpson said when he left the, the, the coaching job in 1996 and he used that comparison I think he said where's the effect of it it'd be a bit um, uh, a bit cheeky of me uh, to crack it over being uh, moved on as coach when I've moved many players on uh, out of the Australian team at different points in his tenure so yeah I, I definitely feel that way too and this sense that the players have got ahead of themselves, like players have always had a say in who the coach was, and and that's been borne out in a number of player biographies, autobiographies over the years. The, my immediate perspective on this, or my first thought on this, was that it was pretty clear after Australia won the Ashes convincingly and won the World Cup unexpectedly but triumphantly uh, in the UAE last year, that if they still went ahead with this change, if the player feedback was still that they wanted to to move in a different direction, and we'll come to the whys and wherefores of that as we go through the conversation, but they did so eyes wide open that they were going to get the shit kicked out of them. They couldn't be uh, naive to the fact, Cummins especially as captain, that it was going to be a bloodbath, that the that Langer's close friends in, in the media and who played with him, and there are many of them, uh, 
who'd been very uh, vocal through the course of the summer saying he should be reappointed, we're going to respond by saying this was a disgrace. And so it was. So my first impression was that if he knew all of that and they still went ahead with it, that must mean that Cummins and co, let's call it Cummins and Finch and co, as to who co are, I suppose that'll be revealed as well in, in time. They must be doing it because they believe it'll make the team better. They're not going to be doing it for some sort of sense of spite or some sense of sort of, uh, you know, um, oh, they want to run their own team. They want someone they can walk all over. No, well, that's not actually not how it works as professional cricketers. You you live or die based on your results as an individual and as a collective. It's the most individual team sport there is, but the team results still ultimately determine whether um, you, how you are held, what, what standing you are held in. So why would they do something that was counter to their interests? They, they are surely acting in what they believe to be the right thing. Whether that is the right thing, by the way, that's a separate conversation, but but questioning the motives of why they might want to look to a different leadership axis, and that's what it was when Payne and Langer took over four years ago. They came with, with a job to do to rehabilitate the reputation of Australian cricket. We all know why that was. Were they successful in doing that? Yeah, probably. I think for the most part, the, the standing of Australian cricket now compared to where it was four years ago, no, no, not probably at all. No caveat required. Absolutely. Australian cricket is held in a in a higher regard and with more respect than it was uh, back after that disaster. Um, is that job done? Yep. Has Payne retired? Effectively, not, not formally, but effectively. Does it make sense that they're about to start a different journey now under Cummins without trying to become the best team in the world, in the world across the formats, win the World Test Championship, win the World Cup? defend the T20 World Cup. They are different kind of challenges to the ones that existed when Payne and Langer took over. So it kind of stands to reason to me that, that Cummins would want someone going with him on that who would be compatible with the way that he's seeing the world. That, that all kind of makes sense to me. And the other part of this is that I think a lot of the views on this are you can't get rid of a, a guy who's presiding over a winning team because he's a good coach. But it's not about being a good coach or a bad coach. It's about what is it's about being the right person for the right time, being the right person for the right environment, and those sorts of things. Now, yeah. the issue that some players had with Langer is not new. It first was coming to light over a year ago. We've known about this for a long time. We know that it got briefed out to the media in January 2021, and we know that it came to a head again in the middle of the year, even though the team hadn't really been playing, you know, aside from the, the, the kind of white ball stuff in the Caribbean and Bangladesh, there was momentum behind this movement from a lot of the players to say, look, we've had enough of, of working with this guy and it's time for a change. Okay, fair enough. Now, results up to that point weren't great and there are lots of extenuating circumstances, but, you know, Langer inherited a team in 2018 that got bashed around the place, lost to India that summer, drew in England lost to India again uh, two home summers later, put a sort of reassembled a team for the 2019 World Cup that was a weird sort of team that went okay and then got bashed up in the semi-final. You know, on-field results were not exceptional over that period of time. And then, you know, they win the T20 World Cup, they win the Ashes, fine. If there was a problem with the coach before that, that problem's not going to go away because you won a tournament and then won a Test Series that doesn't fix the problem. If there's a problem, there's a problem. If there's a, a breakdown in the relationship, there's a breakdown in the relationship. You can't try to band-aid that relationship just because things are going well externally. It's like you, in a personal relationship, it's not going to go great just because, you know, you've both got good new jobs and, you know, every, everything's going well sort of in your lives. Otherwise, it doesn't mean the relationship's going to work. So the fact that this problem had been in existence and it had been known about for a long time and that 
Langer had taken a very long time to admit it, to actually come to terms with it. He'd basically sort of put it off for six months and pretended it wasn't real. And then having engaged with it, did the I'm going to step back and let other people run the day-to-day stuff in the team. Okay, cool. If, if you're effectively being paid to not coach the Australian team, what's the point? What's the point of then saying, well, we've got to sign this guy up again, who in order to make things work with the team has had to stop? basically coaching the team, has had to stop doing day-to-day stuff with his players. Why would you then want to sign him up for another three or four years? Yeah, I mean, as, as ever, there's quite a bit there. So, look, there, there was a tweet that I, I wish I remembered who sent it out, but saying that if Langer were to continue and the basis of it was fundamentally changing the way that he was, over time he'd resent that. And I think that that might go to the idea that this team have outgrown that kind of coach. And again, timing is everything, right, with, with these types of things. In 2018, they did need a focal point and they did need someone who could carry a lot of the water when they were performing poorly, when they were missing their two most important batsmen in Smith and Warner and, of course, all the reputational damage. And when they came to England in 2018, all the abuse they were going to cop and, and so it went for the couple of years thereafter. Langer was a very suitable fit at that particular juncture, but this isn't that team anymore. Sure, some of the personnel might remain the same. Much of the personnel remains the same, but they've been on that journey. They've they've come out the other end of it and they're ready to do something else now. They're not sort of referencing everything by what happened in Cape Town in March 2018. That's what it was like for the first two years after that. Pretty much every series that we covered, every match that we were involved in, somehow there was some tangential link back to what had happened in South Africa 2018, whether it was the individual or the performance or the controversy on that particular day, there was always some link. We seldom talk about it anymore in the day-to-day of the Australian cricket team because it's not relevant anymore. Um, Things have moved on. So they need someone uh, They need someone right now who is geared towards the next bit, the future. And if it is someone who is more fundamentally hands-off as a starting point, if it is that someone who has a personality that's more that way to begin with, then that probably says a bit about the maturity and the growth of this team in, in recent times, especially what they feel like they're able to achieve under a new captain in, in Pat Cummins. I think with timing... Uh, that you touched on there, Jeff, about uh, what we learnt in January last year. And let's remember Andrew Wu and Chris Barrett uh, blew the top off this initially, then Dan Bredig with an interview with, with Langer. Uh, that, that was the early seeds of all of this. In August, in the middle of the year, there were a number of stories as well. They had that big powwow in the Gold Coast before the White Ball series, and uh, we had a couple of shows devoted uh, to that then because when Langer fronted the media via Zoom after that, and Finch pretty much looked after him. You know, Finch said that Langer has listened... Langer understands where things aren't right. Langer will change. And then, and then Langer fronted the media and said, well, that's all bullshit. I never said anything of the sort. Things were fine as they were. And, you know, he kind of, re- I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm shorthand there, but he effectively went back on what Finch said. How much have that gone in the dressing room at that particular time? That, uh, you know, that they, they came out the end of it thinking things were actually, this guy might be ready to make a fundamental shift only for him to say, oh, well, you know, that's all, that's all media garbage anyway. All you blokes are making it up. So I, I, I think, think that, that was up. Optimistic at the time that that was Finch. It was Finch sort of trying to. It was the he was trying to look after it him. Finch, it, it was Finch manifesting what he hoped. No, I agree. No, I agree with that. But I also think it was a, yes, it was positive. But also, it was probably quite pragmatic from Finch as well, knowing that they weren't going to get him, so to speak. Then that he was going to be serving through to the end of the year. They had you know a T Twenty World Cup coming up. It was in everyone's interest for things to get better, not to blow the joint up. But in hindsight, if they knew what they know now, maybe they would have pulled the pin out of the grenade in August and went for that because I think that 
public opinion in August last year was almost one of derision towards Langer. I mean, maybe this is a little bit of online brain here, but like he, it was a bit of a piss take about where things had gotten to with him. Of course, they barely played in 2021 to that point. They played those white ball series and did poorly in the West Indies and Bangladesh. But the most recent experience before that was losing to India at the Gabba. The Australian public weren't a huge fan of that. It's the fact that they've gone on this great winning streak. Uh, and that's what it's been, a winning streak uh, in, in white ball cricket than, than red ball cricket in the last few months, which has fundamentally changed the entire conversation. And as you said, I don't think that, yes, it's a results-based business, not, not questioning that at all, but it shouldn't change the underlying conversation about whether they feel as though they're ready for a new leadership duo in Cummins A and other to replace Payne and Langer. This is the crux of it, right, is that uh, Langer is not a bad person who's done anything bad or wrong. He's just a personality that started to get to some people working in close confines for years on end. That's okay. That doesn't mean he's, you know, he, he deserves to be derided or or whatever it is. Um, it also doesn't mean that he's a tragic figure who's been undermined and backstabbed. It's just the right time for things to move. But here's what I really take issue with, with the whole thing. Cricket Australia and those at the top of it running the joint have known for over a year that they have this problem. They have known the end point of Langer's contract. They've known that the point at which things needed to change, if things were to change, would probably be after the Ashes, that they couldn't, they can't run him all the way up until June, sort of going to Pakistan and all the rest of it, because if you're going to move someone else in, you need to give them a bit of a head start and all the rest of it. So a four-year deal is always a three-and-a-half-year deal, really, because if it's going to end, you need to do the transition. And if you're going to extend it like Pat Howard with Darren Lehman, you do that a year or two before it's due to end. You sign them on for the extension then. And I should say, by the way, that Lehman's deal wasn't four years to begin with. I think it was three years then got extended. So mm-hmm. four years to begin with is unusual. Yeah, it was three plus two, I think, in yeah, the end. They yeah. added two more, but they did that well well before there was even mm. any thought of the contract running out. So the fact that Langer was getting so deep towards the end of the contract already basically told you that it was unlikely he was going to be contracted again for for a full term. So what we understood to be happening in August was that basically the players had been given terms saying, we're not going to get rid of him now, but he will go at the end of his contract. Now, as far as I knew and you knew and everybody else knew, that was the tacit understanding with the players. I don't know how explicit it was, but that was the assumption. And then suddenly they get to a point um, sort of once the ashes have been retained, where the talk starts to be, oh, well, why doesn't he get retained? Why don't why don't they sign him up again? And Lang is saying, yes, I want to keep going. I want to keep coaching. And the people who wanted there to be a change would be saying, oh shit, okay, well, what's going to happen here? Is is this actually going to happen? None of that needed to be a, a question. None of that needed to be conjecture. Cricket Australia should already have known what they were going to do. They should have known in August. They should probably have known in January or February last year if they were going to say. Uh, too bad we're signing him up again or if they were going to say okay once he reaches the end of his contract he moves on they should have already known what that result was going to be they should have had the meetings they should have worked out their line they should have known all of that before the ashes started before the t20 world cup started because australia were always likely to win the ashes they weren't expected to win the t20 world cup so that was a bonus for langer as the coach but even before that happened that shouldn't have been the thing that changed the outcome that changed what was what the plan was. The plan should have been in place. CA should have known what the plan was. They should have given them two days after the fifth test to enjoy it, and then they should have got on with things. And instead, two weeks after the fifth test, now what, three weeks almost after the fifth test, they're still fucking about. They're still, oh, we're having meetings. Oh, we're discussing this. Oh, we're putting out these press releases. Oh, we're going to work it out. Oh, we're putting an offer. 
how the hell did they not have all of this stuff lined up, ready to go, knowing exactly what they were going to do? How did they not have Langer on board with what the process was, what the offer was, what they proposed to do next, so that it could be done properly and so that it wasn't left like like somebody running around the house trying to get ready with three minutes to go before the cab pulls up to take them to the airport and they're still getting out of the shower with one leg in the, in the trousers falling over as they go down the stairs. It, it's an absolute embarrassment that Cricket Australia didn't have this sorted out ahead of time when they had a year's notice that this was going to be a problem. Yeah, they, they sort of committed that um, that crime in politics of letting someone else fill the vacuum. Um, and they, they gave so much space for the conversation to move on independently of them. And this uh, and this goes to uh, Peter Lewis, uh, who, of course, uh, uh, the final word, uh, played a cricket game against a couple of weeks. Peter Lewis, a very experienced uh, campaigner and, and public affairs observer uh, in Australia, he compared it to the toppling of Kevin Rudd. And look, you know, I, I'll be careful with what I say here because I was around at the time, but his point was that the main actors didn't explain why they were getting rid of Rudd at the time. So the people internally did it without having that conversation in the wild until much later. It was kind of a, a, a conversation that started later and it, it, it caught people by surprise. I think there's a little bit of that going on here. Uh, I'm not trying to say that... Um, I'm, not, I'm not drawing um, character comparisons between the two there, by the way, simply that there are some similarities in the way this story played out. So Cummins, when asked about this in the last... Well, last couple of months, really, played an incredibly straight bat. I mean, he was he didn't lie. He didn't um, provide the, the full support of the board-style quote. He was dignified. Uh, he kept his counsel. He, he referred to the process that was being undertaken by Cricket Australia, presumably because for months and months and months, as you say, there has just been this sort of tacit agreement between the, the team and the administration that this would happen uh, at the end of the contract. And in turn, they didn't need to get the drumbeat going from the playing group because uh, it was all kind of in hand, that they were ready for the transition, no hard feelings. They were working with Langer. As we mentioned with Finch before, they had a job to do with the T20 World Cup. With Cummins, they had a job to do. Remember, high degree of difficulty uh, appointing a new captain a fortnight before the Ashes. And they pulled that off and they performed exceptionally well from day one of that series via the leadership of Cummins. So everything went right. They obviously worked well together this summer. What was that comment? from Josh Hazelwood when they won the T20 World Cup that they effectively coached themselves uh, over in the UAE. That's fine. It worked for them at the time. That is great that they were able to find a way to get to the end of the contract with everything staying on the tracks. There wasn't some car crash. This isn't how it is for Chris Silverwood in England at the moment where he's being removed because the team just simply can't perform and he's the coach. This is kind of an opposite, well, not an opposite. This is a different scenario where the playing group have found a way to make it work under a coach who it's fairly clear they are ready to move on from, but they never had the conversation publicly. So that's where we're playing catch up a little bit now. Usman Kawaja spoke eloquently today, as he always does. And quite, I like the way that Kawaja really these days is quite punchy too with how he sees the world, saying that you know, he's great mates with Langer, that there were some parts of Langer's coaching which were no good early on. And now it's up to Cummins and to Finch to come out and explain more about what's gone down. Alex Carey said that it caught him by surprise, but um, he had a great personal relationship with Langer. So we've heard from two of the group. I'd call them two of the senior members of the team now in, in Kawaja and Kerry. And now it's time probably for, for Cummins and Finch to add a bit more meat on the bones. And and that's fine. I mean, and maybe that could have happened before as per that comment from Peter Lewis. But I think it would have been wrong to have asked Cummins and Finch to have uh, been doing that heavy lifting when their objective at the time was to keep everything on track on the understanding that they wouldn't have to do anything too callous at the end. But it didn't even need to have them explaining it. What it needed was for CA to 
have worked out what they were doing and to have got everybody on board with it. Why were they not having a conversation with Langer before the ashes saying, okay, whatever happens over the next couple of months, here's what's going to happen after that? Or what do you want to happen after that? And where can we come to as an agreed position after that? Um, Do you want to uh, go to Pakistan, do that, come back and do the T20 World Cup and wrap up then? Do you want to wrap up after the fifth Ashes test? Uh, You know, how do you want to do it? Because your contract's going to come to an end at some point in the next, within the next year. And and how do you want to arrange that? Well, that might've been, that that might've been where they read the T. Okay. The only thing I'd say mitigation for CA on that is that they might have realised that Langer might have blown the joint up then. Because as we know from, we talked about this on, on uh, with Tom Morris last week, Langer wants to be coach forever. He wants to be coach for 10 or 20 years, not for, not for six more months. So I suppose they mm. might have made the calculation that if they started talking about it privately at that point, um, that, that he might have cracked the shits. So, I mean, I, I, surely, I can see why that, that he might knew have... That, he knew that he was 90-10 to be on the way out. He, even, even he would have known that was probably what was going to happen and he was going to campaign to keep the job and fight for it. But that if, if they just said, if, if they hadn't allowed him to think that he was a chance to try to stay in it, if they'd, if they'd just got everything over and done with early and said, okay, this is how it's going to be, how do, you want to, how do you want to play it from here, then that seems like a far less painful way to do it than letting everything run, letting everybody think that. So every party thinks that what they want to happen might still be a chance to happen right up until the 11th hour. And then, of course, you're going to have people upset and angry and sore about it because they're invested in an outcome by that point and they think it's a chance to happen and then it doesn't. That's when they get pissed off, you know, and that's why all of Langer's mates uh, in the media and the, the high-profile former players particularly have all piled in getting stuck into the current lot and complaining about how it's oh, it's unreasonable that um, the, the players... Oh, what's the Shane Warne stuff about how players shouldn't have a say on who the coach was? How many, how many times has Shane Warne put both barrels into John Buchanan, you know, while he was, while he was playing under him? and afterwards and then saying that players these days are too sensitive and uh, to criticism and, and they they think they should get whatever they want. And this is the guy who's still complaining about missing one test match 25 years yeah, ago. Yeah, I mean... I mean, it's just, it's just unfathomable that they can have that lack of self-awareness. I think there are two groups here. I mean, I think you can... There's kind of... The, there's sort of Warren. You could probably isolate Warren from the conversation because if you're looking for consistency with, with Warren, then you're going to be left disappointed. So you probably need to look at the, the, the sort of Gilchrist ponting comments as sort of the sensible, I wouldn't say middle of the road, but obviously very, very close to Langer, right? And I think that what you mentioned before, why didn't CA, why didn't Langer see it coming? Why didn't Langer know it was 90-10? Probably because uh, uh, some of the most credible voices, if not the most credible voices in Australian cricket, were saying all summer that you should reappoint this bloke. Um, and it's Steve War as well and and not unreasonably, by the way. I mean, the proposition that very close friends would support other very close friends. I mean, that's just human nature. That's okay. But there, there was a way of managing that, of course. And, and I think, um, you know, Ponting, who identifies as being Langer's best mate, doesn't he, or something like that, was able to uh, at least provide some context around what was happening. I think he did a decent job when interviewed mm. in the immediate aftermath on, on ABC Radio. But there were others who, who, who probably lacked that, that polish with how they did it. And, I mean, obviously, we both like Mitchell Johnson an awful lot, uh, have a lot of time for him, but I think he missed the mark by a mile with getting the both boots into Pat Cummins and, and um, acknowledging his own hypocrisy uh, in the process. But I think that the, the very fact that these very strong 
prominent voices. And um, that, that discussion we had with Tom last week around if you put an 11 together, a former Australian greats who are backing in Langer, it would be you know, a world-beating team. It was the, it was the creme de la creme of the, of the golden generation. And this is a really interesting meaty topic. We could talk about this probably for an hour alone, but what does this say about this group of Australian players and their unwillingness to be in the shadow of, of the greatest generation? Whether they know it or not, whether they've gone out with this in mind or otherwise, I think this is a bit of a statement that they are going to be defined by their own actions and not having to forever look up to the commentary box and, and receive uh, support or otherwise from, from a group of players who were Extraordinary, who achieved remarkable things together, but are now in their you know late forties or early fifties or something like that. That this group of players are like no, no, thanks guys, uh, we're going to do it our way now. I mean, the very fact that Langer had to pick up the baton after the sandpaper disaster, that cultural idea, the, the way the Australian team built itself up to believe that it had to be that way. I'm not saying cheap; it had to be that way. We both know what, what I mean when I say that. Behave. It had to be dr- as dreadful as they could be on the field to the opposite. Position, uh, and there was some link between that and success. That goes back to the aforementioned generation I said before. They were brilliant, but, but they behaved that way. Then it all comes falling apart when a group of guys who are less temperamentally disposed to doing that try and sort of puff their chefs out and, 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 and be like the, the big boys who came before them, uh, do an absolute botch job of it in South Africa and humiliate themselves. And then they need to pick up the pieces. And they go to Langer, who was one of the, the experts in mental disintegration back in the day. So it does kind of go full circle and I wonder whether now Cummins and and the team he will lead are like actually we're going to do this our way we're not going to say one thing and do another we are going to be a different kind of cricket team that that doesn't have to huck too far back to where we find our values so there's there's curious circularity to the to the idea that so Langer had to come in and clean up the mess that had been instigated by Langer's generation and now the rest of Langer's generation are saying you can't sack this guy he's the guy who cleaned up the mess that we made, the mess that we started, the mess that begins yeah, with that, us. Yeah, that's a much better he, way of summing it up, yes. <laughs> he, he fixed the problems that we created and therefore we're furious that you got rid of him. Like, that makes no sense at all. And then those of them who have got stuck into Pat Cummins, like trying to paint him as some sort of underhand schemer or something. I mean, uh, to, to go back to the analogy from before, Pat Cummins is not Bill Shorten. You know, there, there's, there's a bit of a gulf between the two um, in, uh, on many, many levels. But all that Pat Cummins has done for the entire time, uh, as far as I understand it, is say, uh, I think it would be best for someone else to take over as coach when this contract ends. That's all he's done. And so when he's been asked about it in the media, yeah, he didn't come out and do a Joe Root and give a glowing endorsement of Chris Silverwood, who was definitely going to get sacked at that point. Because what was the point? That, that would have been dishonest. It would have been disingenuous. And so he said, oh, well, you know, we'll, we'll wait until the series is over and then the people above me and the power structure will work that out. You know, it's not my decision. That's okay. It's okay to say that. It's okay to say, you know, I think it's, it's best if we move on to somebody else. That's all right as well. Like... Not choosing to endorse someone for another run is not the same as stabbing them in the back or knifing them or, you know, getting rid of them. Contracts are contracts for a reason. They have a time limit for a reason so that when they end, you can work out whether you want to contract someone else or whether you want to extend it. There's no right to have it extended. There's no assumption that it should be extended. And so, the, you know, the idea that Cummins has done something wrong, he's been completely transparent throughout this whole process. He's been the opposite of underhand. Yeah, yeah, I think that's right. And just to come back, loop around on something I said before and build on it a bit. 
about what this team want to be and how they want to play the game. I have this really strong memory of, of having a, a one of those little press gaggles that we have on tour where it's like the four or five or six of us or whatever talking with the coach at the end of the India series in in, uh, in Dharamshala and it was kind of a you know they'd lost the series but it was a, a broadly positive experience I think for Australian cricket winning a test in Pune being very competitive winning a uh, drawing a test in Ranchi they probably should have won in Bangalore and they were, they were exhausted by the time they reached the end and got blown away in, in Dharamshala and Lehman was talking about very openly with us about how different that particular team was to the one he inherited in 2013 and 13 14. How a number of those greats had retired. Well, I say greats, very senior players had retired. And there was a new generation coming through. And the way he was explaining it was that he had to evolve himself as a coach because the personalities had changed so much. They didn't respond as well to the rah-rah. Uh, they didn't respond as well to what we were talking about before. He may not have used the words... Um, mental disintegration but you know what I'm trying to say that there was less of a link uh, less of a through line between the generation that he'd been playing with and now the one he was coaching in 2017 and I've always maintained the view that the fuck-ups of 17-18 which started you know before the, the first test at, at the Gabba with uh, with the, we're going to end careers and Warner carrying on and all the rest of it and what happened at, at the end in South Africa in Cape Town I always maintained it was because the group of players were, were trying to be what was expected of them they weren't suited to being that way they felt like they had to be that way uh, otherwise they were being uh, they, they weren't they weren't right to wear the baggy green implicit or otherwise there was this pressure on them and they botched it I think this group were actually in a very similar spot I don't think this team I mean, the way, you, you know, it's hard to, you know, we haven't seen much of the players in the last two years since COVID, but it's my impression from, you know, watching a lot of the cricket they play, but also their social media posting and the way they address the media is they are much like that team were at Dharamshala in 2017. They're a group of players who aren't cut the same way. They're not brutal. They're not angry. They don't feel as though that is the, the secret to their success. They are wired far differently to the group of people who are out there who are banging the drum for Langer at the moment. So I think that might be partly where this disconnect is. And such as it is with the culture war that, that's, uh, that this is fed into as well, I saw that because Pat Cummins talked about climate change last week and started Cricket for Climate, and at some point we'll do an episode on that. Hopefully we'll be able to get Pat onto the show and, and talk to him about it. But, I mean, today I saw a piece um, you know, from Rita Panahai, you know, who is getting stuck into Cummins saying that well, he's got enough time to talk about climate change but not enough time to defend his coach. I mean, it was that, what's that Peter Costello um, comment about low-altitude flyers? Well, that, that's what she is. But the idea that this Praetorian guard around Langer, which we, we've referred to Alan Jones a couple of times around... <laughs> Who do you want to save more? Polar bears or Justin Langer? Yeah. Who do you love more? This is a patriotism test. It's on the Australian citizenship test. You can only save one. <laughs> Justin Langer and a polar bear are hanging onto the edge of a cliff by one hand each. You can only save one. Who is it? Who's it going to be? Yeah, I saw a tweet in response to that saying that um, would Rita be happy if uh, if Pat Cummins was investing in fracking and but still supported Langer, all would be okay. But this is where it sort of seeps in, you see, because I think that there is this idea, and I've experienced that in my replies this week. I put up a tweet um, on on Saturday morning, which was broadly summing up what I said at the start of this conversation around would the players be doing this if they didn't genuinely believe it was in the best interests of the team knowing they were going to get the shit kicked out of them and I got scores of replies most of them from WA but from around the country too saying oh these soft lily livered pampered overpaid bloody soft cocks because there is a sense out there from many Australian cricket fans that 
players should be in the mould of Justin Langer. And if they're in the mould of Pat Cummins reading Indigenous literature and talking about climate change, then they don't fucking like it. But that is, whether you like it or not, how this particular group are built. And people are going to have to get used to that. Some of them. Some of them, I think. Not all of them. So, so not all of them. But you know what I'm trying to say. It's it's more about what's the prevailing wind in that room, and I think that's the prevailing wind in that room. And that you can have um, there there are allowed to be differences between generations uh, without without having to look down on them for it. You know, just because people don't do things the way you do things. Back in my day, we used to punch each other in the teeth every day. That was entertainment. We didn't have TV. We just had punches in the teeth. (laughs) That that show was on 7.30 every night. All right, we'll settle down, you know, and and, and nobody's trying to start a state war over this. It's it's not state against state, mate against mate. Um, Yeah, but I I do think, sorry, just to, you say there is, there is a, I mean, there is another thing going on in WA right now and, We'll probably never know. Like we've not lived in Western Australia through the pandemic and it's been a very different experience being a Western Australian through this, but that isolation, you know, it's not hard to detect that people in WA, a lot of people in WA genuinely feel this has been an attack on them by New South Wales or, 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 or by Over East, or uh, I think it's the term, is an Over East that they've, they've had it out for them. And Lang is one of theirs. And, I mean, there was that Liam Bartlett interview on 6PR with, with Malcolm Conn last week. Liam Bartlett's been like, I think he won a Walkley about 15 years ago or thereabouts, and he was running the old tell us your sources to Malcolm Conn. I mean, like, that's not... I mean, that's ridiculous. This guy's an experienced reporter and journalist, yet he he thought, I mean, the way he spoke to Malcolm would suggest that he was a, a university student who'd, who'd never um, been through any of the of the training or, or never experienced anything that is journalism. And then I reckon Tim Gossage is an absolute legend. He put up, but he put up a really funny tweet, very proud West Australian, but he um, said that, uh, you know, how many people would show up to Perth Stadium if, if Justin Langer um, was given a microphone right now and told to explain what had happened? It was like Billy Graham at the MCG. I think Daniel Cherney made that oh, comparison. Mate. But there, there is something oh, else mate. going on there, which I think we need to be a little bit sympathetic about because we can't put ourselves in the shoes of people who've been um, isolated from friends and family for, for two years. But I, I think that's added fuel to the fire. The fact that Langer is West Australian and, and there's this sense that um, WA is being fucked over by the East. Whereas if this had been a sort of a, a Melbourne coach and a w, a Melbourne coach and a, and a New South Wales, I doubt we'd be having uh, that parochial conversation. Yeah, yeah, famous New South Welshman Andrew McDonald um, and, <laughs> and Michael Divinuto are behind this uh, behind this scheme. Imagine that Justin Langer proclaiming from the Justin Langer end, uh, mate, mate, they wouldn't have an Australian flag big enough. Oh, mate, it'd be, it'd be incredible. Um, so I think a lasting thing out of all of this for me is also that Justin Langer has been fucked around. He has been he's been made to look stupid. He's been he's been humiliated basically because like I said earlier the exit could have been managed a lot more graciously Um, they could have made sure that everybody knew further ahead of time what was going to happen so that it wasn't you know it wasn't coming as as somebody being pushed out or but this this kind of tricky thing that CA did of oh we offered him a contract extension no you didn't you like said he could have another four months in the job or whatever it was I mean that's that's just shit administration at its absolute peak where they, you know, as, a, as an organisation, they're so uninclined to actually be honest, be straightforward, wear criticism. They're always trying to evade it and that's what they were doing in this case as well. And he's been made to look stupid when he's actually, he's done the job, you know, it's not easy. He's put himself into it. He did take over at a 
awful time. He had a shit job ahead of him. They had a couple of years of being absolutely belted around by by everybody, you know, especially in that first nine months or so when, when things were really tough on the field. And, I mean, he's been well remunerated for it, but in a lot of ways, it's you know, it's not a job that a lot of people would have wanted to take up. Yeah, I think that we'll look back on, on these four years as, as a time when Australian cricket did we said this before, but did get its mojo back. And Langer can take a lot of credit for that in setting the preconditions. Sure, the way he went about it might not be aligned to where this team's going, but they needed a reset. He provided that. And along with Tim Payne, and I think in a way, in sort of eulogising the Langer era, we should loop in Tim Payne too, because Payne was a huge part of this as the on-field leader. And, and Finch, but talking specifically around around the test team, that they've been able to get to a much better place. They've been able to get to a point where now I genuinely think this Australian team could be the number one team in the world across the formats in a couple of years. Um, I don't think it's outside the realms of possibility that, that Australia and India could have a fabulous rivalry for being the number one team in the world. And you couldn't have said that with a straight face four years ago. So um, Langer has set that up. He's been part of that development process and and where they take it from here will be really interesting. But you're right, um, spending 300 days a year on the road, not so much in the pandemic, but before that, 300 nights away from your family and from your own bed is a massive commitment to Australian cricket. Langer has been a tremendous servant to Australian cricket over a long stretch of time. It's, it's, it is sad that it has ended this way, uh, but uh, I think that in the fullness of time, uh, people will be able to reflect on the positive contribution he's made across the board uh, rather than necessarily worrying too much uh, around the way it's ended. Uh, and um, I'm sure he'll be very employable around the world in the months and years to come. And, and it could have ended It could have ended in a really nice way. Uh, you've won the Ashes, uh, stonking victory. Here's your spot in the Hall of Fame. Thanks for everything. You know, here's your guard of honour as you go out the door. So uh, I think it's a, a real shame that the organisation blew the chance to try to make that happen. Over in England, I haven't noticed anyone being quite as upset about Chris Silverwood <laughs> losing his job. Well, <laughs> I don't know why. I don't. I don't claim to understand the British national character, but they they <laughs> seem to be less upset about this. That old, old silver pants is on the way out. Um, Ashley Giles is gone, the King of Spain, and Graham Thorpe, the uh, the cigar uh, mafioso of Salamanca, <laughs> has also got the boot. Um, I, I think it was phrased as him resigning, but or deciding not to continue or something. But I think they all yeah. did. Yeah, we all knew this about three. Well, more than three weeks ago, probably about six weeks ago, that this was likely to be the outcome, but um, it's it's finally been formalised. Yes, the quadrennial sacking of everybody uh, that happens uh, not, not all the time when they leave Australia, but but, but a lot of the time, most um, times, most times. And and Paul Collingwood, uh, as we mentioned off the tops, the acting coach in the Windies. I was kind of pissed off about the response to this, especially the way that Ashley Giles news was received, because that was that got the biggest. You know, that was the. Um, you know, that, that was the basketball in the pool, uh, you know, that, that made the mm. big splash. And that's probably a, a bad um, a bad comparison there because I don't think a basketball makes much of a splash in the pool. But you know what I'm trying to say. That was the big rock. And after that, we knew the reverberations would, would capture Silverwood and, and the assistant coaches too. Uh, and I just feel as though with Giles, in much the same way we were talking about Langer before, he's made a massive contribution to English cricket as a player, administrator. He's been the coach of the white ball team. He's obviously worked in the county system with Warwickshire for a long time as well and that's probably it for him and inst- and and I, and I felt as though it was just straight vitriol like people were just so horrible and like isn't accountability what he's experiencing like he's literally losing his job and his livelihood that is accountability mm. that is the 
right and proper action from the ECB to take and for him to sort of uh, ultimately decide to, to leave the job, whether he was, the extent to which he was sacked and to which he said he'd leave, I don't really care. The point is he's going and he is being held accountable for England's very poor performances in, in recent times, at test level specifically, but, but also for some of the off-field stuff which contributed to it and other decisions that were made along the way. And we can sort of look at the the Jofra Archer uh, injuries as a, as a bit of a symptom of that, I suppose, if we really wanted to be critical. But that was perfectly reasonable, as it was that Chris Silver would, would leave his job as well. Chris Silverwood, another uh, man who's given a lot to cricket over a long stretch of time, uh, and he's leaving the job with his colours lowered. And, and that is a tough thing for someone who, up until a few years ago, was seen as a brilliant coach over at Essex doing uh, so much good there. So he took the step up to the England team. It's not worked out. They've had some success. I mean, of course, they won in South Africa. Uh, they won in Sri Lanka. But, of course, they had a, a dismal tour of India. And the white ball team are in a, in a period of transition at the moment. And they've only, well, really, they're only six months away from another World Cup, such as the, the craziness of the schedule at the moment, and then they'll have to defend their 50-over World Cup next year. So we talk about timing and, and when it's the right time to make a change. This makes sense. That's fine. It didn't work out. They get on with it, and um, now they get to, to reset initially around Paul Collingwood, and in all probability, Alex Stewart will be invited to take a, a position, uh, so it seems, uh, through the course of the English summer, and Andrew Strauss overseeing things again as he did after the 2015 World Cup debacle so England had that chastening experience in 2015 where they were bundled out before the quarterfinals there they brought in Strauss they brought in Bayless they got the white ball team together they retained the Ashes in in 2015 or won the Ashes rather uh, back off Australia in in 2015 and that worked pretty well there with Strauss um, steering the ship well he'll get the chance to do that again ahead of that very busy calendar and uh, yeah we'll probably have the same conversation in four years again Jeff but this is the right time for it all. Well, I, I think you can you can position those people as scapegoats and say, and, and it is a fair point to say, how are you supposed to get a really good test team out of English county cricket at the moment when, you know, particularly with batting, the options available are uh, pretty thin on the ground. Uh, but I think all of the... The Giles Silverwood um, ouster is... It pretty much comes down to Giles is the one who makes the decision to say, let's get rid of selectors and let's make the coach a selector, uh, the only selector. And the coach then proceeds to make a series of absolutely disastrous selections. And you could look, you can pick holes with any selection in hindsight. If a team loses, you can always say, well, if you'd picked this player, it might have been better. But, you know, picking four seamers in a pink ball test in India, you know, <laughs> leaving out your best green top bowler on a green top in Brisbane like these kind of things make no sense and yeah England would probably have still lost those matches if different teams had been picked most likely you know most likely it wouldn't have changed things but if they'd been organised had their best team together and given it a go and lost and that would have been easier to stomach probably than making obvious mistakes that, that pretty much made it impossible to, to win from the get-go so that's what it comes down to I expect that 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 structure will be reversed I expect they'll you know they've got to go back to selectors for the time being anyway because they've only got an interim coach in in Collingwood who's done pretty well to be around this team for about 40 years just by keeping his head below the parapet he's never <laughs> been one of the ones to get fired because he's always the fielding coach or something but you know now he's he's sticking his head up above there and he might find that it's more hostile up there than he, he's used to. He, it's, he's got a good chance to um, to end up the white ball coach, I reckon, Collingwood, if they diversify the roles. And and again, that, that's something we haven't really talked about, what will happen with the Australian job, Andrew McDonald, for now, but there's a pretty strong chance they split those jobs too. That, that seems to be in fashion at the moment. And yeah, you, you're dead right around those big decisions that are easy to point at were Silverwoods and, and the power 
invested in him was given to him by Giles. So it is only right um, that, that both of those guys have to wear that. They have to wear those howlers. Um, and Silverwood accepted it. I think that's yeah. the thing that sticks for me is that he went and he was, he was offered, do you want to be the only selector for the England team? And he said, yeah, sounds great. I mean, you've got to know your limitations and he's known as a quiet, self-effacing, humble man. He needed some humility in that context to say, well, I don't think that's the best way this, for this to operate. Yeah. Yeah. That, that, that sort of argument that do you need to have a, a more football style Supremo where the manager, the, the national manager controls everything. And maybe it was kind of the influence of the Euros last year. I mean, this is crazy to say this, right? But maybe England doing so well in the Euros or the World Cup in 2018 might have informed that to a point. I don't know whether those timelines necessarily marry up when the decision was made to get rid of Ed Smith, but I suppose you know what I'm, what I'm trying to say, how these these ideas are, are fashionable and then they're not, and we'll go back the other way now, presumably, and see but England if you, have if some If you selectors. need someone in a waistcoat, Adam, do you want it to be Ed Smith or do you want it to be Chris Hill? Like, you know <laughs> well, who's going to look more dapper in it. Both can pull it off. I think Ed Smith's more the less the waistcoat and more the sort of tennis bag over the shoulder um, kind of character. Mm-hmm. And, and uh, more power to him for it. Uh, right, uh, Jeff, before we uh, take our break, we probably should note the fact that Australia have, just before we were recording, actually, named the squad for Pakistan. And by mm-hmm. the looks of things, I can barely see a name out of place. There, It seems like the least controversial test squad I've ever seen. <laughs> Uh, unless unless <laughs> yeah. I'm missing something, everyone I expected to be there, that group of 18, and had you and I, you know, had a gun to our head, we would have named this 18 and we would have been right. Well, yeah, although, you know, had you and I named an 18, we would have put Glenn Maxwell in it um, as a, a, a I don't think option. I don't think Maxie's available, isn't he? I don't think Maxie's available for this too. He's getting married. But, uh, uh, yeah, he, so he's the one player that, yeah, we would have had in there. But other than that, I reckon this is 18 for 18. I mean, you go through it. Warner, Kawaja, yeah. Labashane, Smith, Head, Green, Kerry, Cummins, Stark, Lyon, Hazelwood. Set your watch to that. Uh, and then mm-hmm. um, Boland and Nisa are retained as the spare quicks. Uh, Schwepson and Agar, the spare spinners, as expected. Uh, and then the spare batsman, Harris, Inglis, Marsh. And Inglis, of course, is the spare keeper too. So I quite like the fact that Mitchell Marsh has picked. I suppose it's the one interesting talking point is that he's back in the test squad. I wouldn't be surprised yeah. if he played as well because he's quite helpful to have him as a balancing mechanism uh, with, with what he can offer as a third seamer if required. But they've got Green, so you wouldn't want you wouldn't need Marsh and Green in the same eleven. Imagine they use them both. though. imagine that there's. Um, I doubt they'll get one of these pitches in Pakistan, but later in the year in Sri Lanka. If we rock up to Gaul and it's it was mm. it was in 2016, I can yeah. definitely if see Rafael a world. Nadal's about to yeah, receive yes. serve on yes, the centre wicket yeah, at Gaul. Yeah, Thomas Musters won won the toss on the legs to serve. Then I would say Cummins, Green, Marsh as my seam attack. I wouldn't mind mm. that. And then play three spinners, of course. But anyway, time yep. will tell. Yeah, yeah. No, it's interesting. I'm not sure about, well, you, you know, I'm not sure about Harris, but, you know, he's he's hanging in there somehow. Probably his best chance is to not play and then he'll just keep being in the squad and getting paid the touring fees and whatever. You know, it would be nice if Mitch Marsh got a run. Obviously, you know, the the three main quicks are, are the ones you named there. Everyone's expecting two spinners, but I don't know. I mean, Pakistan produces a lot of fast bowlers. Like, we might get quick bowlers decks. We might get Shaheen Afridi decks. Um, if Pakistan's stronger suit at the moment, is fast bowling more than spinning. It's not like they've got a raft of great spinners uh, in their test side ready to go. So we might have a three quicks and a spinner sort of standard set up um, when we head over there. Well, Raw Pindi is now the first test, not 
uh, Karachi. They moved it back one day, so we're starting on the 4th of March. So it goes Rolpindi, so that's the sort of the twin city with Islamabad. So we'll stay in Islamabad, but they'll play in Rolpindi. Uh, then over to Karachi uh, on the on the west coast and then um, across to Lahore to finish. So can't wait to get there. Um, and, um, yeah, I, I think you're right. that There could be an argument for playing three seamers at different points through the series because Pakistan will presumably want to play to their comparative advantage, which is, of course, uh, their fast bowling group at the moment. They've got – well, they've got, they've got three guys who are bowling above 90 mile an hour, so they might – want to play to that and, and have quick tracks that, that come through. And if they do, then presumably Australia will follow suit. So, yes, uh, that's next. And Andrew McDonald will, will be will be the coach and, and Pat Cummins will be the captain and it'll it'll be the start of something. Who knows where it ends? Well, it got to be starting something. Um, right. After the break, we're going to talk about the uh, – we've got the Women's World Cup squad as well. They're going to head over there in a couple of days, the end of the Women's Ashes, which was a drubbing. Um, some one-dayers with uh, the South Africa and the West Indies as well. Before we get to all of that, we have to do one thing on this show that we like to do every week. It's a little game that we like to call No Pledge. No Pledge. Yes, it's a game that we play with all the people on the Patreon page. They fund the show. They send us a contribution that is not a round number. It's a very specific number because it means something related to cricket and we have to work out what the relationship is. For instance, Ewan McDonald is our nerd pledger today. He has sent us one pound and 67 pence. So 167 means something in cricket. We have to figure it out. Back to doing more nerd pledge numbers, Jeff. We did 26 of them yesterday on the story time show that we recorded at four in the morning, your time. But uh, here we go once <laughs> more. Thank you, Ewan. Uh, his clue is, without this number, I might never have fallen for cricket. And how much poorer would my life be if that had not happened. Ah, Ewan. Well, welcome to the cricket family. I'm glad you found it and I'm glad that through that you found us and hopefully you're listening to this show. Otherwise, I'm wasting my time. No, everybody else can, can listen into the 167 as well. So I think this is going to be straightforward, Adam. I think given it's in pounds, it's going to be English and I think it's going to be a score because 167 sounds like a, the sort of score that might make somebody fall for cricket going to be an English player. I doubt that he saw Wally Hammond make 167 with half a dick in 1936. <laughs> um, I doubt that someone falling for cricket and listening to our show would have fallen for it from seeing Johnny Bairstow or Ian Bell make 167. They're that both in the last eight years. So maybe, maybe. It was Johnny's highest score, that 167 at Lords. So far, might better it yet. He might, he's, uh, he's going to be back in that test team after the 100 at Sydney, I'm sure. But I think this has to wind back to 2000 the day that Andrew Flintoff went wild at Edgebaston, the, the precursor to his 05 Ashes, the previous English summer, uh, England batting against the West, West Indies, 210 for four when Triscothic gets out for 105. So, like, no one else has made big runs. And 210 for four, you can still get rolled for, you know, under 300 there if, if things go badly. Flintoff ends the day, he's on about 40, I think, with... Uh, Geraint Jones. I never know if he's Geraint Jones or Geraint Jones. It's Geraint. You, you can go Geraint. Okay. All right. Geraint. Geraint Jones. And they come out the next day. Flintoff goes past 50 and then he just cuts sick. And Jones is, is batting pretty well too. He's doing that. You remember how Jones used to be like very, just fling the hands at it and everything went away behind point or sort of over the slip cordon or whatever. He's doing that business. And Flintoff starts like rifling the straight drives playing the hook shots, top edging them. And then sort of, I think as he approaches a hundred, he just starts hitting sixes because why not? He ends up hitting seven sixes in the innings, three of them in one over from Amari Banks. And uh, he goes all the way up to 167, just absolutely going wild. 
until he finally gets out. I think it was Bravo who got him out, the little wobbly medium paces. So he'd been belting the proper quicks and then Bravo like sends down one of those little UFO sort of knuckle balls that Flintoff misses and it hits him in front and he's out league before wicket. But it was his highest first-class score of his career, that 167. England blast on to 566 declared at nine down. They win easily. That's a point where people are starting to think, if this guy Flintoff is doing something... You should probably check it out. You should probably switch the TV on. Bold heat in that game, took slip catches and belted seven sixes on his way to 167. Nice one. I just look at those scores there down that card and think, gee, that, that's a normal kind of looking test card. Yeah, 210 for four. What England would give to be 210 for four at some point uh, at the moment? It just doesn't happen. What's that mean? What I wouldn't give for one normal day of English cricket? Well, that's, that's kind of the, <laughs> yeah, that, that, that kind of looks like a normal day to me. What they wouldn't give for an opener who could make 105. That's Imagine who. that. That's who. Yeah. I mean, you could have given Hamid 30 hits in Australia and he wouldn't have got to 105. Oh, poor old Haseeb Hamid. He'll be back, I reckon, one day. One uh, day. I hope that so, him off. probably in a couple of years. Of course, you and McDonald, you also win the slab of Brick Lane uh, for your nerd pledge being picked out of the hat uh, to feature on the weekly show. That means that a, a slab of Brick Lane can go to an address to a person of your choosing in Australia. The fact that you pledged in pounds might mean that, uh, that, that it's not coming to you. Who knows? Maybe you live in Australia, but you just have a, a British bank account. It's possible. It, it could happen. It could be that way, but that is for yours to give. It is your gift, as they say um, uh, in politics. It is the gift of the leader to decide when the election is. What's well, the gift of you, you and McDonald, to decide where the slab of brick lane goes? In uh, the episode of Buffy called The First, when uh, she has a series of dream flashbacks to the very first Slayer, it whispers in her ear, death is your gift. But in this case, a slab of brick lane is your gift. Uh, assuming you do live in England, there's got to be one person in Australia you like at least. And all you need to do is find, get their email address and then you can send this to them if that is indeed the case. Uh, a whole range of delicious options. Uh, I've, I've been looking to drink less recently and so I have been turning to the one percenters, the, uh, the sidewinders, which are, it's like the first really delicious beer I've had that's a low alcohol beer normally with the low alcohol beer you're sort of you're like it's drinkable you know you you make the compromise and you think all right at least i can stomach it but these ones are actually really good they've got a couple of different kinds like hazy pails and a, another kind of pail and um and they're tasty tasty drinks and you don't have to get wasted you've been putting in the one percenters mm -hmm. the hardball gets mm -hmm. of beer drinkers jeff lemon yeah i got sledged for it at the final word game because i, I took one out when i was batting and peter lewis had a look at the can and was like hey, he's drinking one percent out here you know i was like at least, I, at, least, <laughs> at least i brought something you know you guys on the waters you know sorted that um anyway yeah so look you don't that, that's the thing you don't actually have to drink not everyone likes to drink that's fine you can uh, you can not do that and enjoy delicious beer or you can also just enjoy delicious beer if you want to uh, bricklanebrewing.com all right, that's been uh, that's been a very long uh, first segment. I looked at my recorder. We're just hitting one hour on the dot. Who knows what it'll be edited back to? But um, that is time for us to take a quick breather. And when we return, we'll be talking uh, women's cricket and the Under 19s World Cup. Hi, I'm Natalie Jimonis, and you listen to the Final Word with Jeff Lemon and Adam Collins. Best cricket bats in the world, Woodstock Cricket. They work with us here at The Final Word. You get 20% off because you're friends with us. TFW20 is the offer code. You simply put that in the bar at payment, woodstockcricket.co. 
www.goodgearguide.co.uk. They came first and second in the Good Gear Guide in 2021. Let's hope they repeat the dose in 2022. They are currently making a bat for Winnie. It's her birthday on Monday, on Valentine's Day. Her, her present from me will be her first cricket bat. I'll take a photo and send it to you, Jeff. They wanted to know last night, how tall is she from the floor to her waist? So I got the, the tape measure out. It took me about a quarter of an hour to measure her. She wouldn't fucking stop squirming, but I reckon she's about 40 inches possibly <laughs> from the floor to her hips. Um, so she'll have her, her first proper cricket bat and uh, it will be one that's made from some of the best wood going and uh, our friends there at Woodstock. I didn't need to pay the full fee for that because it's a kid's bat but what better time to buy a bat uh, with the English season around the corner why wouldn't you want 20% off you know as Tim Shaw used to say on the Demtel ads why pay more it's a good question it's a more? question I've come back to over the years if <laughs> if you for instance let, let's let's go into how 20% works for instance if if this thing cost $100 and then someone was like you don't have to pay 100 I'll give it to you for 80 why wouldn't you want to do that? Why would, and then you can multiply that by multiples of hundreds because cricket gear is very expensive. But Woodstock cricket gear is less expensive it than is. most cricket companies to begin with. And it's better. And then they give you 20% off. I mean, this is the trifecta of reasons to do it. You go to the website, you put in TFW20 and you get 20% off all your kit, your pads, your gloves, your bats, your bags. They do clothes, they do hoodies, they do polos, they do hats. They, they do, do, they, they, they do gilets. I saw a gilet with Woodstock on it uh, last week. They do a baseball cap. They do a, mm-hmm. is it a Louis Vuitton bag? I think it is with the Woodstock insignia on the side of it. There are all sorts of things that you can buy. I once met uh, Tim the Demtel man at Parliament yeah. House many years ago at the mid the midwinter ball. He used to always go along with Bronwyn Bishop uh, and there he was doing his thing on the dance floor. So um, that's a really lame claim to fame that only kids of the 90s could possibly understand. Wow. Um, so there you go. And that's why you have a house full of steak knives. <laughs> yes, right. Always showing the steak knives. Uh, yes, uh, that is it, woodstockcricket.co.uk. And you're dead right, Jeff. They could put their prices up. Why wouldn't you? If you've got the best bat in the country, you could charge a price that's commensurate to that, but they don't because they realise that cricket equipment has become increasingly unaffordable and they want to make sure they are good citizens in, in the cricket world. Indeed, they are. Woodstockcricket.co.uk. The offer code is TFW20 for 20% off. Hi, I'm Dave Warner, and you're listening to The Final Word. This, it's The Final Word. That's what it is with Jeff Lemon, Adam Collins. Uh, The cricket has just kept going. Uh, Only today, Adam, only today I finished the last one day in the Women's Ashes, the multi-format series. They started with three T20s, two of which were rained off. They played the draw in the test in Canberra, which was uh, one of the best women's tests ever. I, I looked up the numbers on this and there were there have been two women's tests in history that had that were won uh with a smaller runs difference than um mm-hmm. than than the the 12 runs 11 12 runs that was between the teams so had um had australia got got the last wicket it would have been the you know with with 12 to go it would have been the third closest ever uh, had england got the runs no women's test has ever been won nine wickets down in the fourth innings so that would have been the first there, there was one by eight wickets um so it would have been the best by wickets and the the third best or or could have got closer by runs i think there was a five run result and a two run result so a great great test match but the way england collapsed in the fourth innings of that test match when they seemed to have it on ice they should have won it and they fell away and had to hang on for the draw that seemed to start the rot through the one days because they were awful 
awful through the three one day internationals, you know. And and this is this is a team stacked with a lot of players I, I like and regard, but by God, it is hard to get my head around just how bad they were in 50-over cricket. They're the defending champions, but they won their World Cup five years ago. And how they can play this badly this close to a World Cup, I'm not sure. Well, and and the, the toughest bit to square with this is that they should have won the first one day. Uh, they keep Australia. They were chasing 206. They bowled so well, especially Kate Cross, who I was watching it. I was up at like 4.30 in the morning. I was very ill last Wednesday, so I'd been sleeping all day and woke up Thursday early enough to watch most, most of the innings. And, and Cross taking three for 30 odd from her 10 if they were picking a world team right now she'd be in at first change but mm-hmm. um, predictably the batting just wasn't there they lose two early wickets and then there's the collapse and for a moment there I thought it was going to be a similar situation to when they chased about 220 odd at Taunton against India last year after the early collapse but uh, they were all out for 178 Darcy Brown took another big step as a match winner taking four for 34 Nat Siver looked the most likely for England but once she was out for 45 um, it fell away very quickly and it was all rather sad really that you know we had mm. within what was that within three days of each other the test match that nearly uh, you know brought the teams in mm-hmm. well it, it would have set it up had England won it would have set up these one days to be absolutely magnificent and they all would have had plenty riding on them. Instead, the draw means that Australia only need to win one of the one days to retain it and they do it after England bat so poorly in the first one day. I felt like what happened in Melbourne was somewhat inevitable um, that they were going to fall away and, and so they did. Yeah, but it, it, it was it was startling how comprehensive it was. Like there was just nothing once, like Siva was trying to hold it together on her own for a while, but it just kept sliding away. Um, Megan Shute picked up her hundredth one day wicket in that game. The fastest ever to bat mark. So she got there faster than Catherine Fitzpatrick, mm. who was, you know, who's the speedster to end all speedsters in women's cricket, the, the sort of Jeff Thompson yardstick that, that no one else has been able to match up to yet in terms of just pace and it's also really interesting Adam that at the moment so obviously Julian Goswami has the most one day wickets with 230 is it or 240 and still going she'll she'll be going around again and, and probably wrapping up at the World Cup uh, Fitzpatrick had, had 180 and she's long retired and right at the moment there's this tussle as to who can chase Fitzpatrick so Perry Catherine Brunt Shabnam Ishmael from South Africa and Anissa Muhammad, the spinner from West Indies, they'll all be playing in the World Cup. And they're all between about 163 and 174 wickets with Fitzpatrick on 180. So the four of them are all in a race. I'm curious when you look this stat up, what, what, which day of the week did you... Did you look up today? today? Oh, okay. Well, yep. that'll account for the fact that, that Ishmael went four for four for to finish their series, which we'll come to in a moment. Mm-hmm. I was wondering whether she might have already uh, passed Fitzpatrick, but but not quite. No, no. she's So it's Anissa Muhammad, then... Shabnam Ishmael, then yep. Brunt, then Perry. Perry got four wickets in this last series and bowled really well, which he hasn't done for a while. Her bowling's been a bit iffy, but bowled well with the new ball in the test and then carried that over into the one-day series. Across the three matches, she went at 2.3 runs and over, mm. at least Perry. Picked up four wickets, an average of 11. I just, you know, they just weren't willing to take her on. But there was a big part of this was just how, how timid England were with the bat and they set themselves up to lose these games. Darcy Brown, you mentioned four for 34 in the first game. That included getting Heather Knight first ball. So Heather Knight, after making 200 and whatever runs in the test match, gets done for a golden duck um, by Darcy Brown, who then gets rested for the next two games because she's 18 and they don't want to risk injuring her ahead of the World Cup with Taylor Vellamick, the other really quick option, out injured as well. So, you know... 
Brown's out, second ODI. They get sent in. They made 129 in 45 overs. Like, this was just painful to watch. A lot of wickets fell early. 67 for six at the halfway mark. Eccleston, the spinner, top scores with 32. Perry takes three for 12 off seven overs. Australia chase it down in 35 overs, you know. And Mm. then if you're thinking that's bad... The third game, Knight wins the toss and says, I'll bat first. And I kind of liked that because they made such a meal of batting first two days earlier on the same surface, same start time, 10 a.m., Junction Oval. I felt like that was Knight saying, okay, you guys, all of us, we fucked it up. Now we're going to do it better. We're going to have another go at this and we'll do it properly this time. And they, they were somehow even worse. So... Remember I said in the first game, after 25 overs, 67 for six. In the second game, after 25 overs, 67 for two. They hadn't even lost wickets. They made 67 runs in 25 overs. It was Beaumont and Siver after uh, Knight and and Emma Lamb, who who was on debut. She got out second ball, bowled by Perry, got brought in to replace Winfield Hill. And then Beaumont and Siver just go, oh, well, we'll just block everything. I don't know what the point was. I don't know what they thought they were going to achieve. They just kept batting out, you know, maiden overs and over with one off it and over with two off it. They had no ability to try to find singles. Like, yeah, when it's difficult and the pitch is tricky and you can't play big shots, you've still got to find a way to manoeuvre runs here and there, which the Australians did really well. They ran between the wickets well. They found gaps. England just went straight bat, back down the pitch, back down the pitch, back down the pitch. 67 runs in 25 overs. It was... Mm horrible to watch, like genuinely mm. awful to watch. Yeah, Emma Lamb, I think I'm right in saying she had a TFC on international debut in T20 cricket back in, oh, it must have been September against New Zealand, and then got dropped immediately. I can't remember who was injured, but they recalibrated the team and she lost her spot. Maybe it was Heather Knight. Uh, and, and so she hasn't played a T20 since, and you can see here a second baller opening the batting. Uh, England made a number of changes and gave her that chance and gave Tash Farrant the chance to play as well, Freya Davies, in that final game, because they not been called upon for the entire series and I suppose they thought they should try at least to give uh, a bit of fresh blood a go because as it turns out uh, they get to the end of this entire series without winning a game they, they get four points but as they did in 2019 but in 2019 they won a game they won the the final t20 but here their, their other two points were collected via the two washouts uh, in the t20 internationals plus the the aforementioned draw at Monica so that's pretty grim reading for a team that now goes in to try and defend their World Cup uh, they um, obviously are staying in this part of the world or in your part of the world, Jeff, for the time being before getting on the plane to New Zealand. That's tough too. We, we mentioned a few weeks ago, if, if they by chance get Omicron uh, in that window, that's World Cup over. So they're effectively going to have to bubble between now and, and flying to NZ, which is not fun. I think they leave in about two days. So oh, they're sorry. They're, 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 in, in Australia for long. Right. They've given them an earlier window. Fair enough. But, but the point remains that... This whole tour, much as it was with the England men, has been in the shadow of COVID and the dreadful preparation. And in the end, they've, they've fallen away like the England men did in that final test at Hobart. I see some similarities there to that that, that, that second and third one-day international when they were, well, uncompetitive, frankly. Yeah, but I mean, this has been a much shorter series and I don't think they can claim the fatigue aspect in, in the same sort of way. Sure. A quick turnaround from the test match, sure, but uh, they were all out for 163. Australia chased it in 36 overs. England have been bowled out in seven of their last nine uh, one-day internationals. Yeah. Like, they're going like a busted ass at the moment. Um, you know, and Australia just cruised it. Lanning, 57, not out. Perry was not out, 31. Um, just did it easily in the end and so it's, tell you what this Australian 
squad that they put together for the World Cup. I mean, they look – the side looks extremely imposing. I've, I've tried to work out who the likely 11 would be, and I think it goes – Healy and Haynes to open, Lanning and Perry three and four. You can lock those in. You can lock in Mooney at five. These days you can lock in Talia McGrath at six and they'll go Gardner at seven. So that's serious strike power. And then it's probably Annabelle Sutherland, I reckon, has pushed out Nicola Carey as the first choice just by the way she's bowled through this series and in the test match. She's been so good with defensive bounces, um, good accuracy, hasn't been caught on with the bat, but has really stepped up with her bowling. Um, and she's got more pace and, and height than Carey, who sort of skids it through and you know was, was a fixture at that sort of number eight position before that but maybe she's out then it's probably Alana King or Jess Jonathan I'm not sure they can play them both but one of those whether it's the leg spinner or the left arm orthodox I mean Jonathan's number one ranked bowler in the world in yeah. cricket and potentially might be left out if they decide to go with the leg spinner um, and then Megan Shute and, and Darcy Brown they're very keen on Darcy Brown they like her pace and she's so athletic in the field so probably carries a spare Grace Harris Amanda Wellington's in that squad as well, so they may even go the double leg spinner at some point. And then the travelling reserves, Georgia Wareham and Heather Graham. Um, Hannah Darlington pulled out today. Uh, she was the, the other reserve but said she wouldn't be going, so Graham's got um, in. She's able to sneak in in that spot instead. So, so many all-rounders in that side. If you look at that kind of 11 I put together, they basically bat to nine and they've got seven bowling options or eight bowling options in that 11. Yeah, Georgia Redbane, uh, the travelling reserve, not Georgia Wareham. You said that and I'm like, is Wareham back oh, sorry, from her yeah. knee reco already? But no, <laughs> but, but you're right that, uh, that, that Redbane gets that opportunity. And, and, and I love the there fact that... There are so that many Georgias. Georgia was the most common name in the Big Bash last in the last couple of seasons. There were six Georgias in the Big Bash um, the, the last couple of times around. Georgia on my mind. They've got parents that, uh, mm. that love that love that era <laughs> of American music. I love how you can kind of just sort of like just go, oh yeah, then, then Lanning and Perry. Uh, yeah, Lanning and Perry, right? So Hypercourse crunched the numbers today. Their partnerships in one-day run chases, they've had 13 of them for 1,190 runs, an average of 170. 11 of them have added more than 50, with five of them more than 100. Today was an unbeaten 90, and, and 12 of those 13 times they've batted together in one-day run chases. They've been on the winning team. So the fact that they bat three and four, and Australia's record in, in bilateral um, one-day series, I think they're up to, is it 20 in a row, going back to... 2013 or something like that. Yeah, um, they haven't lost a series since 2013. Yeah, um, so. and they they just came off their 26 match winning streak, and now they've started another three match winning streak. Yeah, which isn't to say, by the way, that they're gonna they're gonna walk this. I mean, you know, they had a similar imposing record before the. Uh, the 2017 World Cup, but it's a very different team five years on. And, and it's good that there are teams that could knock them off on their day, um, but but England don't look like they are one of those at this very moment. I mean, I think that 2017 team still had some ordinary players in it, and this one doesn't. There are no weak links in this team. This is the next le- next step up from professionalism, isn't it? Because, I mean, if, even if you want to look at it in pay cycles, the, the 2017 World Cup team was the team that was playing at the end of the previous MOU. This team has had five years where... I think I'm right in saying the average salary is 200000 Australian dollars. I mean, that's different gravy uh, as far as what they've been able to... And I'm not saying that money is the, the measure of how well you play cricket, but it's a it's a yardstick in terms of what you can put into the game and, and how you can play without any other distractions as nationally contracted players. And, and that has uh, that has gathered some momentum around the world, in, including places like South Africa. Now, as you know, Jeff, I, I am a little bit 
a little bit obsessed with the South African women's team. They are one of my favourites around the world and they did a great job in that series against the West Indies. Reminder that um, when we spoke last week, they got washed out in the first one day at the Bull Ring. Again, they probably would have lost after the Windies made a lot of runs and South Africa were five for 70 odd in the chase. Then they lost the second one day in a super over, but boy, they bounced bounced back brilliantly in the third and the fourth. So the third one day, uh, the Proteas made 299 for eight. Laura Woolvart uh, opening the batting 117 from 123, one of the most graceful players in the world. Uh, the stand-in captain, Sunay Luce, made 53. Chloe Tryon bashed 43 from 24 at the end. And Nadine de Klerk, a bit of a dual threat there, made 22 not out uh, from 15 at the death as well. And the Windies bowling, I reckon, is just a little bit of a problem. Like There's that contrast to South Africa there where they've got this group of uh, well-established seamers that we talked about last week. And the Windies, on the other hand, I mean, they've gone back now to Anissa Muhammad, who's, I think she's 34 now. She was captaining by the end of the series, so they don't look quite as potent as Africa uh, with the ball. They were able to bowl out the Windies for 203. Their chase was 300. They got nowhere near it. With Ayabunga Kaka, two for 27, went bang, bang early on, backing up her Pfeiffer from the second game, uh, getting Deandra Dotton early on for 12. And then Shabnam Ismail uh, took four for 37, clinical as ever. And then in the fourth one day, they, they bowled first Africa, that is, and, and knocked over the, the visitors for 174 in 49 overs. So effective and, and economical there. With Kaisia Knight top scoring with, with 48 and Dotton made 36 to finish a big series for her. But the bowling was almost identical. Uh, again, it was Ishmael who took four for 37 in the third game, took four for 44 here. And Ayabunga Kaka took two for 27 in the third game and took two for 25 uh, in the fourth and they were able to chase down 175 comfortably uh, with Stain making 52, Luce making 47 and, and they win the series 2-1 uh, with that one washout. So I think that's a, a pretty big statement. I know they're playing at home, Jeff, but again, just having that group of quicks taking their 10 wickets most of the time, uh, Laura Wolvart making runs, Sune Luce making a contribution with the bat, Chloe Tryon down the list and they've still got um, Marazan Cup to bring back, of course, the captain, Didi Van Niekirk, and um, they've got their veteran, uh, their former captain, Mignon Dupria, uh, making runs there too. So you, you kind of take it as a whole. They're going to field 11 very, very good cricketers in New Zealand in conditions that, that should really suit. So I, 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 they are definitely the team most likely, I reckon, uh, to be a problem for Australia. Um, and maybe India on their day, but I just don't think India's seamers are good enough. So yeah, I think it's more likely to be the Proteas. If you were in the printers where they made the WEG posters for who was going to win the, um, the the World Cup final, you'd be picking up one of the South African ones before the end of the game. That's what you're saying. <laughs> um, well, <laughs> we've been on them for a long time. Though. They've they've been they've been the Adelaide Strikers of, um, yes. of international women's cricket. <laughs> in that we're like, this is the time. This is the time. They nearly they sort of sort of got close in the T20 World Cup semi final. Yeah, they should have won it. Nadine de Klerk went went big. Well, they, the end, I think it's worth. They, they pretty much choked in that game, right? I mean, they were. Yeah, when you boil it, was, what, when, thirteen overs aside, well, or they're, they're chasing like ninety odd in thirteen overs, and they got off to a flyer. They should have won, and then they nearly won because of rain and, and so on. And then, of course, they they missed out by two balls in in the seventeen semi final. So, yes, their their trend line is good. Mm, yep. Well, hopefully, and and for West Indies, I'm not sure. I sort of get the feeling that DeAndre Dotton these days is is a player who might come off one time in twenty, that sort of thing. Like occasionally does something amazing, but everybody's expecting her to carry the team every time, and um, she just can't do that. Nobody can do that. I think she did a couple. She she had a couple of thirties and a, and a ton and, and a big super over there. I don't know. I, I feel like maybe she could be 
more dependable now than she was before. Well, I suppose we'll see across a, a World Cup where they're going to play seven group games in 20-odd in days. You know, the, the proof of the pudding will be mm. in the eating. Yes, never really understood that, but there we go, pudding uh, analogies. So the Under-19 World Cup final, yep, this was a, a romp for India. Um, when they when they played England in the final, absolutely annihilated them. Just to make English cricket fans feel uh, that that extra little bit, you're like, here's a tournament you didn't even know was happening and didn't care about. But thanks to the internet and social media, you lost this as well. It seemed a bit unfair. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, England did hang in there pretty well. They were only defending 189 in the final, uh, and they got it. They took a bunch of wickets with like sort of 10 overs to spare, and but India held on. Nishant Sindhu um, made 50 not out and got them there. He went bang bang uh, in the 47th over, I think it was. So they they win the trophy for the third time. Australia were bundled out in the semis by India for the third time in a row as well. Uh, they were all out for 194 in the third place playoff. There was some interesting uh, points here, so. They played Afghanistan. Afghanistan should have made the final, not England. They were cruising, chasing 232. And then Rayan Ahmed, who's the young Leicestershire leg spinner, who's got serious skills. So he took four wickets in a hurry and and, um, England did sneak over the line in a thriller. They advanced to the final. Afghanistan go to the third place playoff against Australia, who India defeated. I mentioned that before. And that third place playoff was uh, was interesting as well, I reckon. Um, Afghanistan were all out for for 201 uh, William Saltzman took three for 43. Uh, but then Australia, it took him all the way until the 50th over to chase it down, another thriller. And the chap who bowls spin with both arms, Navithan Radhakrishnan, made the crucial half century to, to steer them home, uh, batting number three, and they had a collapse, but uh, he was there at the end. So he took three wickets. I'm not sure which arm he was bowling with uh, for the three wickets, but contributed with the ball and got them home with the bat. Interesting story. He was born and grew up in India. I think he moved to Tasmania. Now he's playing Sydney grade cricket so uh, yeah one to watch in the years to come he's been playing in the um, Australian 16s and Australian 19s uh, over the last three years and uh, let's hope he's he's ready for a long professional career and it'll be one that we follow closely here I am sure so yes that's the end of the 19s World Cup we didn't pay a lot of attention on the final word but by all reports from our friends who are out there covering it it was a great tournament and um, the future of the game is uh, is in good hands. Uh, good ambidextrous hands. When you're told to seize an opportunity with both hands, it's much easier <laughs> when you're not dominant with one hand or the other. You can seize much more effectively, you know? That, that is a very important thing. Um, I think that's it. I think we've done the show. Do you reckon we've done the show? I think we have. I think we've done it. It's time for me okay. to move on and talk about the Olympics for five hours. So I think we've, we've got it in just in the nick of time. <laughs> All right. Well, this has been The Final Word. Jeff Lemon, Adam Collins. Uh, we do this show once a week where we talk about what's going on in the game. On the weekends, generally, we do story time, which is about the history of the game. And at other times, like when we go to Pakistan, we'll probably be doing a short daily show um, from each day of the test matches over there. I assume you can find all of that on the feed where you've found this. Uh, the shows on the Bad Producer Podcast Network. They have lots of other shows as well. It's edited by Dave Collins and it is supported by Brick Lane Brewing and uh, Woodstock Cricket. And I should say on the way out that if you want to be involved with the final word uh, with um, our Pakistan Daily in March, do sing out. Uh, We haven't um, quite got around to sorting out our arrangements for that as yet, but if you want to partner with us uh, for the duration of that series, we'll probably make 20 or so shows. Uh, Drop us a line to finalwordcricket at gmail.com. Yeah, Yes, do that. Or just, you know, drop us a line to say hello. Jump on the Patreon if you want to send us a nerd pledge. That's how we fund the show and keep it going. Patreon.com.
facebook.com slash the final word and uh keep on listening keep on trucking keep on doing whatever it is that you're doing it's summer baby in australia enjoy it while it lasts see you later Bye-bye. i had to go about it